morning we are in part two of our study in pneumatology, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So last week we considered together the person of the Holy Spirit, and it was so good to be reminded um, through Scott's teaching on, on that subject how the third person of the Trinity is a person, not an impersonal force, not a personification, but a person and a personality, and that he is deity, he is God. So today we're going to endeavor to study together the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit as it is seen in the Old Testament, in the life of ministry, life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and at Pentecost. Now we may or may not have uh, slides to go along with this presentation, so we'll see if, if uh, my um, technology here will cooperate. Uh, if we had them, they might not be any good because it was kind of like uh, the end of a long week as I was putting these together and you know how sometimes you're driving in your car and you make it a few miles and then realize I, I'm not sure what just happened. So I'm a little scared to open the slide presentation. But uh, uh, in preparing for this study, I'd like to uh, let you all know that um, I was, was blessed by and heavily influenced uh, through A.W. Tozer's uh, teachings on the Holy Spirit, um, as well um, was so excited to read an essay by B.B. Warfield on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and I would commend um, very, very highly that essay uh, to you all, and if anyone uh, would care to, to read that, I can certainly meet up with you afterwards and share the, um, the online PDF for that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump into this study together. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we are before you this morning. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that enables us, that equips us, that ushers us into your presence. Thank you for the promise, God, that he will lead us into truth. I pray that by your spirit, through your word this morning, you would open our eyes together to behold wondrous things out of your law. And I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So I mentioned being um, really kind of immersed in some of A.W. Tozer's teachings on the Holy Spirit. And it was interesting to see how uh, he often would say the greatest error, the greatest folly of the liberal church in the past century was to deny or to ignore the deity of Christ. And we know that is wrong, and we know that it leads to catastrophic results. But he would also say that the great error and folly of the evangelical church today is to ignore God the Spirit. And in ignoring him, we in fact, in fact deny his deity. And I think that, you know, as Tozer predicted, we can see some of the devastating results of, um, of poor Trinitarian philosophy, poor understanding about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. To many in the church today, the Holy Spirit is seen as some nebulous, unknowable, impersonal force. To others, he is a hyper-emotionalized, sort of imaginary friend, a token of spiritual self-validation. 
to still others, he might seem like a cosmic genie that if I just believe enough, just believe hard enough, he will grant my wishes. I think the most pervasive problem and the most dishonoring to the person of God the Spirit is when we view him as some sort of an accessory to our Christianity. Something nice to have, but not absolutely necessary. And yet he is none of these. What he is, is God Almighty, the eminent, active God who executes the will of the Father in the world. So in the 6th century the Christian church, a lot of problems were arising around the person and the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. And this gave rise to the writing of what is known to us as the Athanasian Creed. This is the the third major creed of the Christian faith. Um, And it is a statement from which we derive that uh, that shield, the Athanasian shield uh, diagram that Stephen shared with us in his lesson on the Trinity. Um, I'd like to read a portion of this as it relates to the person of the Spirit of God. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. Let this statement of sound Trinitarian theology inform everything that we look at in the Old Testament, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and at Pentecost this morning. And I have to confess, when I, uh, when I looked at our schedule for Sunday school lessons and, and saw that I, I had a, a lesson in pneumatology, at first I was super excited. I was like, yes, can't wait. This is my, my favorite thing. And then uh, saw next to it that I got to talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I was honestly kind of a little bit deflated, dis- disappointed. Uh, and and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that because my thinking was, well, there can't be a whole lot there. And uh, so my plan going into this was, yeah, you laugh because you know, I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to look up every passage in the Bible that you see the Holy Spirit working where he's referred to specifically and where he's active. And I should have started a long time ago if I was going to do that. Um, and uh, I, I didn't make it past Ezekiel. It was, it was incredible, amazing to see 
the Holy Spirit in action in the Old Testament. But it, the question arises, may we as New Testament Christians, um, in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, read that back into the Old Testament and see there the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God? And the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, we are told by the New Testament writers themselves that we are to identify the Holy Spirit of the New Testament with the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. And all that is attributed to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is attributed by the New Testament authors to the personal Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, wherever we're told about the Holy Spirit's activity, wherever we see him working, it is presented in these three different specific contexts or categories. Oh, I have slides to go through. This is, I forgot. I knew this was going to happen. We'll get caught up there. Okay, here we go. The three categories in which we see the Holy Spirit working, these three different um, <clears throat> layers, if you will, or different contexts. Uh, first, we see him at work on the cosmic level in the world and in the universe. We see him at work in and through creation. And then next, we see the Holy Spirit's activity in the context of the theocracy of Israel. He is actively working to bring about the establishment and the preservation of God's chosen people through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And third, we see glimpses almost a foreshadowing through the promises of what the new in the New Testament age where we would see the Spirit's work at the personal level as he is active in the hearts and the lives of individual people. So first we will look in the Old Testament at God the Spirit at work in the world in this in this category of the cosmic level. So first of all, we see the Spirit at work in creation. Now, when, when we think about creation, or, or at least for myself, when I think about creation, I'm, I'm very accustomed to think of God the Father as the creator, and rightly so, because the scriptures attribute creation to his work. Um, and I think I'm, I'm pretty good about thinking about Jesus Christ um, being uh, the agent of his, his creative work. So I can attribute creation to God the Father and God the Son uh, pretty readily. Um, however, I think that, that we sometimes forget that the Spirit also, the Scripture tells us, played a central, crucial role in creation. And yet sound Trinitarian theology teaches us that as God the Father and God the Son act, so does the Spirit. Creation, we see in the Genesis account, is a work which all members of the Trinity have in common. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we get this really cool behind-the-scenes look at the unique and powerful role of God the Spirit in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 reads, And the earth was formless, and a desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit, the, the, the word being ruach, which means um, the Spirit, the wind, or the breath. The Spirit was hovering or brooding over the surface of the waters. In his commentary, Charles Ellicott describes 
this hovering ministry of the Spirit as a gentle and loving energy, which tenderly and gradually, with fostering care, called forth the latent possibilities of a nascent world. So this hovering ministry of the Holy Spirit, which, which is there right at the beginning, and, and right, right in the opening verses of the Bible, is presented where it is, as the grounds or the basis upon which all that was to follow would happen. As we see the formless desolation of the emptiness of the void transformed into order and beauty. Theologian B.B. Warfield writes that the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the waters is as much as to say that the obedience and the precedent power of obedience of the waste of waters to the successive creative words, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let the waters and the earth bring forth, depended upon the fact that the Spirit of God was already brooding upon the formless void. It is only by virtue of God brooding upon creation that the created thing moves and acts and works out the will of God. I ought not to have been surprised in studying the Spirit in the Old Testament to see how active and how uh, uh, working he is because the Spirit of God is the name of God in action. It is the nature of this Spirit that he is the, the eminent, the, um, the executor, the one who executes the will of the Father in the world. That is his ministry. That is his work. And all that God the Father, God the Son, do in this world and through men are done through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the eminent Spirit of God. Now we see this doctrine of the eminent Spirit of God hovering over the waters, intimate, close, side by side with this high doctrine of the transcendence of God, which pervades the Old Testament. So God the Father is, is willing and commanding, and God the Spirit is enabling and empowering and bringing about obedience to this requirement. So this is how the, the biblical author wants us to, to view the creation of the world, wants us to see this doctrine, these, these two um, sort of juxtaposed roles in the Godhead, his transcendence and his eminence in the person of the Spirit. So not only is the Spirit active in giving life at creation, we can also see that he is eminent, he is active, he is at work in the world as he is the source of all life, physical, intellectual, and spiritual. Through him, the universe was made. In Job chapter 26, verse 13, we read, By his spirit, by his breath, he hath garnished the heavens. By him, all living things. By him, all living things, plants and animals, are created and sustained. Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. 
By him, all humankind are created. Job 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He is the source of all knowledge and intellectual reason. Job 32, verse 8, but it is the Spirit, the Ruach, in man of the Almighty that makes him understand. He is the source of all wisdom and ability. Let me see if I'm caught up here. Hang on. Oh, yes, I am. I might have gone past some stuff, so I apologize. So from here, we move on to this second category. We've seen the spirit at work in the context of the world, of the cosmos. And we see also the spirit at work in the Old Testament in the kingdom, in the theocracy. So many of the spirit's works in the Old Testament fit into this category of operation, where his activities, um, particularly in and through specific chosen men, chosen servants, are in relation to the advancement and the preservation of the nation of Israel and the faithful remnant. See, from the moment that sin entered into the world and death by sin, God's every action in human history has been to bring about the reconciling of his people to himself by his plan of redemption. And central to that plan, especially in the Old Testament, was his plan to establish a nation, a peculiar people from the descendants of Abraham that would be set apart unto him from which the Messiah would ultimately come and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed as they are gathered into the kingdom. So it is the establishment and the preservation of this nation that we see the Spirit working in and active throughout the Old Testament. So this working... <clears throat> Uh, we see it. Uh, we see it presented as or displayed throughout the Old Testament as the Spirit of God anoints or sets apart His servant, equipping and empowering certain men for specific roles in this program, this plan of redemption, in the establishment of the kingdom. So this working by the Holy Spirit in and through these chosen men in history is to execute the Father's will, and it is described as a filling, as a clothing, as a settling upon, as a coming upon, or in some cases even as a rushing upon. So what are some of the tasks that we see these men set apart and consecrated by the Spirit to do? Um, there are many, and they are varied. Um, but sometimes uh, we see the Spirit anointing and consecrating a servant for the task and the role of a priest, as in the case of Aaron and his sons. We also see this, the Spirit anointing, um, setting men apart for the role of a judge or a deliverer like Othniel or Gideon or Samson. We also see the first kings of Israel, Saul 
and David, anointed by Samuel. And the effect of the subsequent energy, the action of the Holy Spirit upon them. Now, something that we ought to recognize, and I want us to see this morning as we look at the Old Testament and look at the actions of the Holy Spirit, is this recurring theme of transformation, of change. Almost every account of the Spirit's working plays out like a, like a before and after. Um, and to, to, to illustrate that, um, we can see it in, in the lives of, of certain men that he calls, where we see Saul transformed from a guy who hides in the baggage to one who speaks the words of God with the prophets and leads the armies of God to war. We see someone like David, the least likely choice of all Jesse's sons. He is set apart to the task, as Samuel anointed, to the task of, of being a, a shepherd king before God, as Samuel anoints him. And the spirit, we're told, rushes upon him from that day forward. And then he goes out and picks a fight with the biggest enemy he can find. This theme of transformation is woven throughout all the Spirit's works. We keep being given these pictures from day one at creation. We look at the, the desolation of the void. Enter the Spirit and then paradise. And then everything that is made through his working. Sometimes to illustrate the same truth of the Spirit's transformative power, we may even have a, a reverse case uh, as with Samson. And these can be really instructive as well. Where before you have the Spirit upon him, he wipes out an army with a jawbone, and then the Spirit is taken away. And without the Spirit, he, he is immediately overpowered. His eyes are put out. He's led around on a rope by a slave. This is the before and after. The effect, the effectual, imminent working of the Spirit. So what are, we've looked at some of the tasks that the Spirit calls men to. What are some of his gifts? How does he equip them and empower them to accomplish the tasks to which he calls them? First of all, he gives the gift of wisdom and discernment. And I, I apologize. I'm all over the place with this, this slideshow. You might just want to tune that out. Um, but the first of his gifts that we look at is his equipping and empowering, as we've already talked about. Secondly, we see how he gives wisdom and discernment. Um, in, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, uh, Pharaoh says of Joseph, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? His wisdom and his discernment was recognized and it was evident that the spirit of God was at work in him. The spirit also gives gifts of skill, intelligence, and ability throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 35, verse 31, we have a man, God says, has been prepared, has been equipped and enabled for the work of the building of the tabernacle, God says, I have filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. 
Next, we see the gift of the Spirit that is courage and boldness to act. In Judges, in chapter 3, verse 10, we read of Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he went out to war. In Judges, chapter 6, verse 34, we read of Gideon, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. He called the armies together. He went out to war. These men are transformed. We see the gift of the Spirit in the giving of strength, supernatural strength and power. In Judges in chapter 14, verse 6, speaking of Samson, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6, we read, And when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he burned with great anger, and he took a pair of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them by messengers throughout the land of Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not march behind Saul and Samuel. And then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they turned out as one man. These are the effects of the eminent working of the Spirit of God in his chosen servants. By the way, don't, don't ever let anyone tell you that the Holy Spirit of God is feminine, is soft. He is gentle as God is gentle, but the Lord is a man of war, and so is the Holy Spirit. He may be heard in the still small voice, or he may be in the pillar of fire. He might knock softly at the door, but he can kick it in if he so chooses. So there are many, many more gifts of the Holy Spirit that we can see in the Old Testament, and time will fail us to look at them all. But the last one that I really want to spend some time to look at and to consider is the gift of prophecy. The Spirit gives the gift of prophecy. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament was simply a man who spoke the words of God, or rather, the words of God were spoken through him by the Spirit. The prophets uh, we, are, we, are see, we see in the Old Testament are this body of official messengers through whom God the Spirit makes known the will of God to his people throughout all the ages. David declared, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Ezekiel said, the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me. In the Old Testament, over and over, there's a synonym for a prophet. That is, the man who hath the Spirit. That is, the effective, eminent work of God in action through his Spirit in men. Uh, and it is seen in the gift of prophecy. Um, he spoke in and through the writers of the scriptures. So kind of within this, this category of the gift of prophecy is the gift through the spirit of the inspiration of, of God's word. He spoke in and through the writers of God's word. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 we read, but holy men of God spake as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I want to look um, real briefly at this, this category, this context of the Holy Spirit working in the soul, in the individual believer. He works on the cosmic scale. He works on the national geopolitical level, but he works even more intimately than this at the level of a person's heart. Um, and we see this in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's not uh, nearly so clear or prevalent um, as it is seen in the New Testament, but there are promises. There are promises and there are foreshadowings of this indwelling personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. B.B. Warfield writes that working inwardly in the spirits of men, he is fitting the children of God for the kingdom of God. Even as working in the nation, he, as the theocratic spirit, was preparing God's kingdom for his people. Did we catch that? We see the work of the spirit of God throughout the history of the Old Testament as he prepares the kingdom for his people. And then in his personal indwelling ministry, he prepares the people for the kingdom. We see how in the Old Testament, the spirit actually inspires holiness in believers. Psalm, in chapter 143, verse 10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The word that, that is, is, is translated here, good, could also be translated as, as gracious. We're seeing the grace and mercy of God in the work of the eminent Holy Spirit as he leads individual believers in truth. The Spirit inspires holiness in Old Testament believers. We also see the Spirit promised as a future gift of the Father, as the Scriptures tell us that someday God is going to put His Spirit in His people in a way that would cause them to live in accordance with His statutes. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 37, I think this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of regeneration, of being made new in Christ and the work that God does. It reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the message in Ezekiel is, is this, this message of, of short-term short judgment on Israel for sin, but this long-term promise of restoration through the new covenant and the sign of this new covenant would be God's gift to his people of the indwelling ministry of his spirit. This was something new. This was something he had not done before. Because always previously, while the spirit had been there and actively working in and through men, 
it was always meted out, and it would, uh, and it would sometimes be taken away. It was sporadic, but he says, I'm going to do this in my people. I'm going to put, take their heart of stone out and put in them a heart of flesh, put my spirit in them. Thirdly, in his personal ministry, we see the Spirit helping God's people by helping him to anticipate the coming ministry of the Messiah. By speaking prophecies through the prophets of the coming Messiah, the Spirit is ministering to his people by giving them this, this future hope in the coming Messiah. Isaiah in chapter 11 verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So as we've been looking at the Old Testament and God's work in and through his chosen servants there, we've seen his eminent, inspiring, indwelling work in these men, we now turn to see him active in the New Testament in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So think about this with me for a moment. We've looked at these beautiful pictures of how the Spirit of God was working in these Old Testament saints, how he clothes them how he rests upon them, how he rushes on them and carries them along, how he gives his gifts of prophecy, of strength, of wisdom, of boldness, justice, righteousness, goodness, and joy. And what we have seen the Spirit doing separately and to varying degrees in these Old Testament saints converges on the person of Jesus Christ. Now the difference here is where in these sinful men of the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was meted out. In God's sinless chosen servant, Jesus Christ, the Spirit, we learn, is poured out without measure. Jesus, we are told, was filled with the Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 34, John's confession, his exaltation of Jesus, he has just seen the Spirit of God descend and alight upon Jesus, anointing him for his ministry. He has seen this, this validation, this authorization that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he says, For he, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives to him the Spirit without measure. In the person of Jesus Christ, the power and the gifts of God's Spirit are unleashed. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and all of these were our Lord's in infinite measure. So too were the fruits of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these, all the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus was pleased to dwell. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would pause here and ask the question. I ask this of myself. 
If God the Son, if He acted by and through the eminent power of the Godhead, through the Spirit working in Him, what hope do we have if we ignore this ministry of the Spirit in the believers? So what are some specific examples that we can see that we're going to have to fly um, of the Spirit's work in the life of Jesus Christ? First, we see him working in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as he implements the virgin conception and birth. Now, this is interesting because we see in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke how the Spirit overshadows Mary and, um, and knits together G the, the, this baby, Jesus Christ, in her womb. Um, and this is a continuation of his work and his action throughout all of history because he is the source of life. He is the one who knit us and formed us in our mother's womb. And the same spirit who saw our hidden part in our mother's womb, his greatest, one of his greatest works was to take all the fullness of the infinite Godhead and the genetic material that would make up a human baby and to bring them together in the womb of this girl Mary. This is the eminent, the powerful, the intimate working of the Holy Spirit on behalf of his people to bring about the sovereign plan of the Father of redemption. He was made to be like us. We see the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, which we've already covered. We see him anointing the Lord Jesus to preach. Um, and I want to turn real quickly, if, if you have your Bibles, to Luke in chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Holy Spirit ministers in the life of Jesus Christ as he anoints him and sets him apart to his ministry as he consecrates him to the preaching of the gospel and the liberating of those enslaved to sin. We see the Spirit also empowering Jesus. We see him empowering Jesus to stand against temptation, where in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, and the Spirit ministers to him. The Spirit empowers him there to stand against temptation. We see the Spirit ministering in the life of Jesus Christ to utter the words of God. We see the Spirit filling him, resting upon him, as we have already seen. We see the Spirit also leading Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says that the Spirit leads him in the wilderness. We also see Jesus in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 2, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. 
we see the Spirit rejoicing with him. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he, speaking of Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. We see as well, and perhaps this could be the, the, the greatest work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, where he works together in and through God the Son in aiding him as he offers himself for crucifixion. We see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus was strengthened by the spirit to make atonement on our behalf. And next to this, the Spirit's empowering of Samson to do something like ripping the gates of Gaza out of their posts and carrying them nine miles was nothing. Of all the Spirit's labors, this is the greatest, that God the Holy Spirit strengthened the man, Christ Jesus, to bear the weight of the sins of the whole world and to endure the Father's wrath. We see also the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ as he raises him from the dead. In Romans in chapter 1, verse 4. Now here's the truly incredible part. We've got a couple of minutes to talk about this. The same spirit that was in Jesus Christ through faith by his atoning work and reconciliation is given to us. I mean, I hope we, we can feel the weight of the glory of that thought. We are made to be, through faith, partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is important. It's important. And so we see the first fruits of this promise fulfilled, the promised gift of the Spirit from the Father on the day of Pentecost. Now what I, I find really kind of exciting and, and I wanted to share with you all this morning is um, as, we, as we shift from, from looking at the ministry of the Spirit in the, in the life of Jesus to the ministry of the Spirit at Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was no ordinary day in Jerusalem. The Pentecost, we, I mean, we associate it with the giving of the Spirit. But Pentecost was uh, a, a Hebrew holiday, or the Shavuot. This is a festival day. Mean, it means the, the end or the conclusion. It was the final celebration at the end of the Feast of Weeks that began with the Passover. Um, and it was, a, it was, you know, if the, if the Passover is this somber reminder of God's deliverance through his atoning work. Shavuot is this, is this exultant, exuberant celebration of God's mercy and his um, acceptance of the sin sacrifice and his reconciliation to his people. So on this day, at this celebration, on the day of Pentecost, the day that the Spirit was given, 
the people, Jerusalem would have been packed with people. Everyone who came for Passover stayed over until, they weren't going to leave until Shabbat, because this was the part everybody was looking forward to. There's this, there's this celebration where there's this procession, this parade that goes up through the streets of Jerusalem, and, uh, and the, this, there's an ox that represents the, the sin sacrifice. Uh, its horns are painted uh, gold, representing uh, God's favor. And uh, it's bedecked with olive leaves, representing God's peace extended to his people. And uh, behind the oxen would come up musicians who are singing and leading God's people in worship. And behind them are all of these children. And this is what's interesting. The theme of Shabbat, the theme of the day of Pentecost is a marriage. Uh, and, and all of this information is, is, is not found in, in Christian uh, commentaries. This, this is coming out of Hebrew tradition. We know that this is what they, were, what they were doing. And all these little children are wearing white gowns and wearing crowns of, of flowers on their heads as they come up behind. And they're celebrating God receiving his people to himself. They're celebrating this picture of a marriage between God and his people redeemed. And this is the backdrop against which the promise is fulfilled. The promise of the Spirit of God that would be poured out. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29 reads, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit. And in Acts in chapter 2, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, as he's preaching to these crowds, to these processions, and these people who are, who are, there, who are there to celebrate God, to celebrate this festival, he says that this day, through the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and signified by their speaking in the languages of all of these nations, this promise has been fulfilled. God has poured out his spirit. Now, within the church, people are constantly, um, within a certain, I guess, uh, portion of the church today, seeking to, to recapture the experience that's described here. But the experience itself is not the important thing. It is the event. It is the moment that is recorded for us when God honored his promise, pouring out his spirit on his people. Now, we're going to have to stop there, and I'm, I'm excited to see this continue on through uh, the next portion of our study in the work of the spirit next week because we get to get into the, the really fun stuff. Um, through, through the epistles. So, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, we've, we've gone a little bit long. Y'all are dismissed, and we'll see you back in here in 10 minutes for the morning service.